If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Podcast Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel Winograd. So, it's been a couple weeks since you've heard from me, and as many of you who listen to the show probably already knew, that was due to my involvement in LCI's sessions at Freedom Fest. So I took the whole family out on a road trip. We visited some family along the way and then stopped in Memphis, Tennessee and stayed for a few days. And I was able to help the Libertarian Christian Institute as we manned a table in the exhibit hall. And then also we did two sessions. I wasn't involved in the first one. The first session was a conversation on nationalism that was moderated by Nick Gillespie. And the three other panelists were Brian Kaplan, Rich Lowry, and then our very own Norman Horn, who was the founder of LCI. So that sort of started the day out. And then in the afternoon, we had a breakout session and I moderated a discussion on Christian nationalism between Carrie Baldwin, Ryan McMakin of the Mises Institute, and Norman Horn. Alex Bernardo, who is another member of the LCI Podcast Network, he did a recorded presentation of his review on the case for Christian nationalism by Stephen Wolf. Alex was unable to attend, unfortunately, because of a death in the family, but he was still able to participate in the session all the same, and we were very glad to have his input. So as soon as that is fully edited and published, you'll see that on my social media as well as in the show notes of upcoming episodes. But while we were at Freedom Fest, we interviewed a lot of people who were there walking around or who had exhibits of their own. So over the next several episodes, you're going to be hearing my live on the floor interviews that we recorded and we're going to be releasing them. And the format's going to kind of vary depending on the conversation. Some of them will be standalone and some of them we lump together, such as this episode. So in this episode, you're going to hear three different interviews. They're all going to be from members of the Libertarian Institute. And so, of course, the one that people are most familiar with will be the great Scott Horden, who I've already had on my show. And we had a two and a half hour conversation about what he's writing in his upcoming book, Provoked, how the United States and Ukraine instigated a global conflict with the nation of Russia. So Scott and I talked a little bit about sort of just where the anti-war movement is at and if libertarians and anti-war activists are making an impact on the American consciousness and on the Overton window of what the political conversation is regarding these wars and American involvement and the role that we play. And then I had conversations with Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman. And they are, although both of them great on all aspects of foreign policy, I interviewed Connor about China and I interviewed Kyle about Ukraine and Russia to get into some of the more up-to-date sort of live on the ground happenings of what's going on in those places and in those conflicts. And you, you'll see sort of a, a theme in these conversations and I'm presenting them to you in the order that they were recorded throughout the day. You know, Scott sort of set the tone for overall how things are going. And then I talked about Russia and Ukraine with Kyle first, and then sort of transitioned that, the themes that Kyle and I talked about into the conversation about China to paint an overall tapestry, I think, about where we are right now, this sort of snapshot in what's unfolding in this global theater. And the theme being that 
it's easy for the war propagandists and those beating the war drums and those who are profiting, whether it be from money or power or influence, by these wars of aggression and instigating these ongoing conflicts, it's easy for them to spew out just what seems to be endless amounts of propaganda. And it can almost seem daunting as libertarians and anti-war activists and Christians confronting an endless sea of lies. That was sort of the theme that we talked about in, in these conversations, because it can be very discouraging. And sometimes it feels like the amount of evil in the world is insurmountable. But what we sort of honed in on is that even though it can be daunting and you know, there's the idea that it's easier to spew out lies than it is to systematically expose those lies and dive into the truth. What we agreed on is that the processes and the conversations by which we unpack the truth and dispel the propaganda wake people up and help them to develop a skepticism and a ability to no longer be influenced and captured by these lies and the propaganda being spewed out. And so even though it seems like there's so much out there that needs to be debunked or so much that needs to be addressed, even though we can never quite hit all of it, A, there's a lot of us and we're not alone, and B, all you have to do is carefully unpack just even a few instances of where the politicians, where those in the media, where those in government are lying and changing the narrative and manipulating things in order to advance these wars and to further their own interests. And we get people thinking, okay, if they're lying about all this over here, then there's a good chance that they're lying about this over here. And I can't take anything that these people and institutions are saying to me at face value. So I hope that if you're listening to this and you're already in the anti-war camp that you're encouraged. If you're listening to this and you're still learning and you're still trying to figure out what libertarians and anti-war activists are trying to talk about when it comes to all these global interactions and all these moving pieces and stuff, it can be a lot to get into and it can almost seem, again, overwhelming and daunting, but I would just encourage you to listen, to also check out the Libertarian Institute and check out all three of these men, Scott Horton, Kyle Anzalone, and Connor Freeman, check out their work at the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com because although this is a little bit of a taste of what's going on right now, they're all very good in their own areas of unpacking the historical narratives and the historical trends that have led us here and going into the minutia of how all of these things are interacting and they can help you get up to speed so that you're not easily manipulated by those in power. So with that said, I hope you enjoy listening to these three conversations with Scott Horton, Kyle Anzalone, and Connor Freeman of the Libertarian Institute. We are here in Memphis, Tennessee at Freedom Fest, and I got the one, the only legendary Scott Horton here with me. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are cool. you? Cool. I'm doing great. It's awesome to have you here talking hey. person. So um, I know you're still working on your book, and Libertarian Institute has a booth here and stuff. What's been the reception so far as you guys have been here, people coming up and talking with you? Pretty good. I met some old friends and some new friends, and I've got... Kyle, Connor, and Keith from the Institute here with me as well. And, of course, they're making a great impression on everyone, especially Keith. Going around, has a gigantic smile and lots to say. is making lots of friends. So, yeah, great success so far. And I love this place. It's great to have this many good libertarians in one place like this. Yeah, this is my first Freedom Fest. And, yeah, it's really cool to be uh, a part of something like this. So, Scott, catch us up a little bit. Where do you think we are right now? you know, the liberty movement and the anti-war movement in terms of, are we making a dent in the public consciousness concerning what's going on in Russia and, and Ukraine? I mean, there's been a lot of ongoing developments and false alarms and people thinking things happened when they didn't and whatnot. You know, is the American public getting tired of this? Are they getting to the point where they might start putting more pressure on the politicians to cut their support for this? Or what do you think? Well... First of all, on the question of the effect that the libertarian movement has had on the debate, I think it's been really great. And, you know, I think antiwar.com and the Institute can take quite a bit of credit for that. Dave DeCamp at antiwar.com, first and foremost, but also, you know, Connor and uh, Kyle Anzalone and uh, Will Porter at the Institute are just among the best on this day in and day out in social media and all that. And I think if you listen closely to critics, 
on the policy. You can hear a lot of antiwar.com and Libertarian Institute type rhetoric in there, and you'll notice it a lot. As far as like public opinion overall, I don't really keep that close of attention on the polls. I see headlines that say that support for Ukraine is growing and then also that it's decreasing <laughs> within a week of each other or whatever. So right. all depends on who you ask and how you ask it and all of that. Um, but I think Douglas McGregor says time wins more arguments than reason. Hmm. So yeah. I regret to say that antiwar.com did not win the argument over all of the Middle East wars, but time proved that we were right all along and that they should have been listening to us all along. And so there's a lesson in there for a lot of people, I think. And really, like, how likely is it that our government is responsible for causing so many foreign policy crises around the world? But definitely not this time, though. This thing, it was unprovoked, I tells you, unprovoked. And, and you know, they say, like in the New York Times, well, because this is so different. This is America taking the side of the insurgents against the powerful government invading the country. That makes this a redemption for all of the counterinsurgency that we waged as the powerful invading country trying to put down the insurgents. Which That's Brett Stevens in the New York Times wrote that. And that's essentially their way of looking at it in D.C. But I think out here in the country, people just know better than to think that the Ukraine, which, be honest, they all thought was part of Russia anyway, <laughs> right? Isn't that the Ukraine? Isn't that like a region, like the yeah. Midwest, <laughs> you know? And so it is true. And I'm not saying that we are at a very high risk of nuclear war, but I think it goes without saying. It's just absolutely true that we are at a much higher risk of nuclear war than we've been probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis or 1983 with the Brinksmanship and the Able Archer exercise and all of that. Worse than that, certainly, like maybe as bad as 62 and for what? Over who controls the Donbass, which belonged to Russia since 1783 anyway, with a little bit of time off because the commies said so? I mean, what in the world are we even doing? So, see, the problem is too, right? You got, ever since, especially Obama times, but even really since the Democrats won the House and the Senate in 06, you got the Democrats or the war party. The Republicans love war so much, so you have dissonance on both sides where there's like a little bit of left-wing hippie type old anti-Vietnam and anti-Iraq War II sentiment left on the left, but it's overwhelmed by Obama and Hillaryite war support, right? And then on the right, you still have that whole, if not W. Bush and John McCain remake the world for democracy and all of that, it's at least based on like, well, we're all big, tough guys, and we got to kick ass and beat up bad guys and fight the enemies and stick up for righteousness. And we're Superman and they're Lex Luthor and, and all that kind of spirit on yeah. the right. So you have a lot of like Matt Gates and kind of America first anti-war sentiment on the right. But Mitch McConnell's still driving the car in the Senate. And, you know, he put out a thing yesterday about how or was it the day before about how he approves of Joe Biden's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. And good for him. Finally, he's doing the right thing and giving enough support to Ukraine is the official position of the Republican Party. So as always, you know, the left and the right and the parties, the Republican and Democrat parties are divided on virtually every issue within themselves. And they're mm. half good and half bad on everything. Yeah. And so we end up getting the worst of everything. They compromise and agree on all the worst and all the good stuff goes to the side. So you'll never have it where like the Ron Pauls and the Dennis Kucinich's have their way, at least so far. Right. It's always the war party instead. Well, and it's like uh, to use, uh, we love using analogies and stuff. And there's like from the Dark Knight trilogy, the hero you need and the hero you deserve. Right. And it's like, you know, the hero we always need is Ron Paul, right? But the one, I don't know what we deserve, but the ones that we're seemingly getting or that some people, libertarians and also just anti-war dissidents on the right and left are clinging to, you have people like Robert Kennedy on the left and then you have people like Donald Trump on the right who seem to, at least, you know, on the surface in some of their rhetoric, espouse, you know, anti-war positions and seem to have decent takes on the war in Ukraine, which is something that I think I, you know, I can take silver linings from that and be yeah. encouraged. But then, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is there a potential danger if the anti-war movement or libertarians get too hitched to either one of those wagons? Because they might talk good talk, but I mean, one, I don't think Robert Kennedy has a chance in hell of winning. Yeah. Uh, but Trump, maybe. But either one of them, if they were in power, you know, are they really principled anti-war people that would cause any meaningful change Great in questions. that regard? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I think I'll differ with you on whether Kennedy has a chance at all, although I admit it's an outside chance, but I think it is relevant that the president could drop dead at any moment and that his vice president is unanimously agreed in the entire global consensus to be not up to replacing him. Right. And then the best alternative they got is Gavin Newsom out in California, who is the guy who so many people fled his state during his reign that they lost a congressman because of his totalitarian lockdown. So now, and I know that the Democratic Party is especially rigged with all their superdelegates and all of their things, but there are 330 million people in this country. You know, we say this about Ron Paul. Well, Ron Paul can never really win. They'll stop him. And we know that in 2012, they did cheat him. Yeah. There's a book about him. Sorry, I can never remember the authors in the name of the book. It's a little thin, light blue book, if you're looking on Amazon, about how they stole 2012 from Ron in the primaries. And that's true. So it was true to say he can never win. They'll do whatever it takes to stop him, right? But it's also true that that's not true. Now, if the American people in, let's say, another 10 or 20 or 30 million people insisted on Ron Paul being the president, he'd have been the president. There'd have been nothing that they could do about it. There are enough of us, as we saw with Trump. And the way it was supposed to work, it was supposed to be Hillary versus Jeb. And Donald Trump went in there with the, you know, the football stiff arm and just bulldozed them all over and took the spot. He won and became the president, unbelievably. But it goes to show that the last bit of the form of the Constitution that we have left, where we have these regular elections, that it comes down to one man, one vote. People can argue about whether they rig it within the margins. But again, if Donald Trump had won by 10 or 20 or 30 million, they couldn't have stolen that, could they? Right? So the possibility, it truly is there. And But anyway, on the question of libertarians supporting them, What's important is all the different levels of analysis and the way that you measure it, right? So the question is not whether Robert Kennedy or Donald Trump are libertarians or whether they would check off nearly enough of our boxes for us to be like their loyal supporters. But is there a qualitative difference between Robert Kennedy Jr. and Gavin Newsom on everything? Yes, yes. Yeah. for real. And do Absolutely. we want... Donald Trump and Robert Kennedy to run against each other arguing about who's going to end the war in Ukraine sooner instead of having Marco Rubio and Gavin Newsom <laughs> argue over who's going to defeat Russia and rub Putin's nose and shit the worst, right? Like, yeah, that matters a lot. And so libertarians should never, we're not naive, we wouldn't be libertarians. We should never jump on some bandwagon out of emotion or some kind of thing like that. Obviously, for example, I mean, both of these Examples are great ones. Trump and Bobby Kennedy both have tremendous flaws. But at the same time, like Kennedy's good on Russia and China. And Trump at least wants to get along with Russia. Not that he did a very good job of that when he was president the first time. But then again, they kind of did a soft coup and prevented him from having a foreign policy of his own the first time. You know, yeah. if he was really, I don't know. I'm not stumped for the guy, honestly. <laughs> He's pretty bad on China. But, he's, um, but, it's, it's, but, but both of them, I think, are opportunities for us as libertarians, as anti-war activists, because yeah. they get perhaps more exposure than we do. And the people who are following them, we can come in behind them and be like, yeah, what he said is true. You can read more about this at Libertarian right. Institute. You can right. listen to an interview at the Libertarian Christian Institute right. with, you know, Jacob and Scott Horton and talking look, and about we're, this. And we're, so, what we're measuring here is the American culture. Like, where yeah. are we at, right? They're, they're desperate to fly robot assassins around because they know they can't send the infantry anymore. We just won't right. tolerate it, right? right? They fight a Ukrainian proxy war down to the last Nazi in the Azov battalion, but they're not going to send the 82nd Airborne in there. They're just not going to do it because we won't let them. That's why not. The American people have the Iraq War syndrome, and we're not taking it. That's different than the Iraq War illness, yeah. <laughs> by the way. Right. So that's a reference to the Vietnam War syndrome, that we hated that. We don't want to do it again. And so they know that. That's the American people that they're struggling with. In fact, I have to run, but I'll leave you with this. Is there's a RAND Corporation study from 2019 called Extending Russia. It's about how to just body blow them all over and just try to weaken them, try to provoke them into overextension. That's what extending Russia means. Provoke them into overextension to weaken them, like the Afghan policy of the 1980s, that kind right. of thing. But there's a lot in there. You really should read it. It's fantastic to learn what's in there. But the point is that throughout that study, 
over and over and over and over, they refer to public opinion in the United States of America, in Germany, in France, in Britain, and they just say, this, we can't do it. Well, we would like to do this, but then again, the people of Germany are decided on this and will not stand for it. And we'd like to do this, but we have to consider that. Polls say that in America, there's really not support for that. And I guess what I would say to you is that you would be pleasantly surprised how much the eggheads at the Rand Corporation think it matters what we think about what they're doing to the Russians or to anyone else out there in foreign policy land. Ultimately, it is our country. As Ron Paul says, even in the Soviet Union, the end of the day, the people get the government that they deserve and demand. And that goes the same for us, too. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for stopping with Absolutely. us again. Thank you for having me. We're the Libertarian me. Christian Institute. This is the great Scott Horton. Make sure you check out the Libertarian Institute, and your book will be out sometime I in the near the future, end of the year, I hope, yeah. right? Yeah. Provoked. Keep Provoked. your eye out for yes. us. All right. All right. Thanks, Scott. Take thank care. Thank you, man. Appreciate yep. it. Hello, everyone. I am Jacob Winograd here with the Libertarian Christian Institute at Freedom Fest here in Memphis, Tennessee. I am joined by Kyle Anzalone, who is the, I'm sorry, I just asked you, I always forgot, news editor of the Libertarian Institute, who's here to talk to us today. So Kyle, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me here. It's been a great time out. Port Fest, a lot going on. And, you mean Freedom uh, Fest? Freedom Fest. <laughs> I was at Port Fest a couple of weeks ago, but Freedom Fest is a really good time too. Yeah, very, very different atmospheres, but uh, but yeah, both fun. So Kyle, I, uh, I talked to Scott yesterday, and I have you now, and I'm going to be talking to Connor later. I didn't talk to Scott much about the institute itself. For those who maybe just aren't familiar with the Libertarian Institute, can you talk a little bit about? who you guys are and what you're doing and what your role is within the Institute. Yeah, so I guess as far as institutes go, we're maybe on the libertarian side, a newer kid on the block. I think Scott founded the Institute definitely within the past 10 years, and it's really started to grow, I would say, over the last five years. We went from having just a couple people on staff to having about 15 now, and everybody is there producing content, writing books, writing articles, I do a lot of news stories. I put out a podcast. Scott, of course, has the Scott Horton Show. And so, you know, we're just trying to put out a lot of new libertarian content. But a very specific thing that Scott has focused on, I think, is reflecting the staff, is to try to give a voice to new libertarians. And so a lot of our staff are, you know, I'm one of the older guys at 32. A lot of, almost everybody's younger than me. And that's because Scott has given opportunities to so many younger guys to start to find their libertarian voice and really become a force in this movement. So we have people like Keith Knight, just the, the absolute rising stars of the movement, I think are all at the Libertarian Institute now. Yeah, I listened to so the Libertarian Christian Institute. We were sponsors for the Mises Caucus Take Human Action Tour, which Keith spoke at. I think a few of their events, and mm-hmm. I listened to him at the New York event that we attended, me and Doug Stewart, who's the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and yeah, he was just really, really, really good there, and that was a great event. So I know Libertarian Institute, just because of the uh, influence of Scott Horton, war is always going to be very front and center in terms of the issues that you guys focus on, which is a particular focus of mine as well. And so we talked about sitting down just to talk a little bit about where we're at in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And I know maybe some of the listeners will be a little bit annoyed and be like, you're beating the horse to death. But I think it's important. I think we, we talked a little bit yesterday about how the mainstream media and the ruling powers that be the war drum beaters, they have an advantage over us in that they are able to just churn out a near endless amount of war propaganda. And it's much easier to churn out misinformation than it is for us as libertarians and anti-war advocates to set the record straight. So that's why I think it's important for us to, as much as possible, be talking about these topics. So maybe you want to catch people up a little bit just to like where things are at in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and what's important to be paying attention to in terms of where things are at and how they're developing. Yeah, so on June 4th, Ukraine launched their long-awaited counteroffensive. And for a a long time, they had talked about waging this counteroffensive and they are going to retake a whole bunch of territory and then possibly Ukraine would engage in talks 
with Russia with the idea that they would be able to get more of their territory back. However, the counteroffensive has fizzled, I guess would be the nice way to say it. It's been a bloody mess. The Ukrainians have launched wave after wave of attack, and it's gone nowhere. Before the counteroffensive, the Washington Post ran an article about how the 47th Mechanized Brigade was this new brigade put forward of Ukrainian men, probably conscripts, but they were lucky enough not to be sent right to the meat grinder in Bakhmut, but rather to be sent to Germany to train with NATO forces. And so all these guys are trained up with NATO training, they have NATO weapons, and they go, they hit the Russian front lines, and it completely falls apart. Leopard 2 tanks destroyed, Bradley strikers all destroyed, and so many dead Ukrainian conscripts. So for the past month, that's kind of been the situation on the ground in Ukraine, is Ukraine will launch a counteroffensive against a different area of the Russian defense. Sometimes they take a little bit of territory, a village here, a village there, but nothing significant, nothing notable. And even Ukrainian and American officials have admitted that this hasn't gone as well as they want it. Now, a lot of this war is in taking really place inside Ukraine, but inside the halls of NATO membership. And so last week they had a summit, or no, earlier this week they had a summit in Lithuania. Biden, all the heads of NATO states are there. And Ukraine was really pushing to get a promise that once the war was over, they would become members of the North Atlantic Alliance. And they were not given that promise. And Zelensky lost his mind and was very upset at the summit. And so at the same time, while they're going to deny Ukraine membership, they are going to send Ukraine a lot more weapons. And so the U.S. made the big announcement that they're sending cluster bombs. Germany announced, I think it was a $700 million weapons package to Ukraine, and France announced they're going to start sending Ukraine long-range cruise missiles. So still lots of increases for the support for Ukraine, even if it's not the NATO membership they were seeking. Right. And I guess the only substantive difference that would come with NATO, like if they had NATO membership now, would be that we would be obligated to put troops on the ground would be my guess. But other than that, it seems like, yes, on paper, there is a lot of talk on both sides about Ukraine's status as a potential NATO member, but it just seems like they essentially are de facto anyway, if you look at just like how much support America and the Western powers have given them. But it has to be, I'm sure, frustrating that they haven't made more progress in uh, taking back any land. And to me, that's just very frustrating Because although I want to be clear in that I'm not in favor of Russia's invasion and I think that was a mistake and an overstep by Putin and that should always, of course, be acknowledged, I don't think that land is so important that it should be fought for with the lives and blood of millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at stake, not to mention all of the global risks that this conflict has with it. And so it's just frustrating that like what you said there that really stuck out to me was that, well, we want to get to the negotiating table, but we're not ready to do that until we throw more bodies into this meat grinder, which to me that like that gets my blood boiling because to me, peace should be at the foremost focus of the leaders in our governing institutions. And it's clearly not. Clearly the agenda isn't peace. The agenda is we have to uphold and reinforce some sort of global hegemon in this situation. We have to make the proxy war go on as long as possible. Does seem to be the policy. And if your blood's already boiling, I think what I have to say Nets is gonna send you over. Oh no. All right, so one, I think a big part of the reason why they haven't agreed to allow Ukraine into NATO is because what Ukraine wants is a pledge from NATO that once the war is over, they will be able to join the alliance with the idea that the main objection is that NATO doesn't want to be in direct war with Russia. And as you explained, Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty says an attack on one is an attack against it all, and there has to be some kind of response. Now, Rand Paul has done some pretty important work lately, making a very nuanced argument that, hey, actually what we have done in giving support to Ukraine is essentially waging a war on their behalf. And so even if Ukraine joined NATO, we could essentially hit our argument and fulfill our argument, Article 5 
pledge to Ukraine that exists under NATO just by giving them the weapons we are now. And so, as you said, they are essentially a de facto member. But I'm pretty sure that the reason they don't want to tell Ukraine that once the war is over, you will become a member is because they know that that would incentivize Ukraine to end the war, right? So if you make that pledge, Zelensky might say, okay, well, now I can negotiate with Putin. But they don't want him to do that. And then the second point that I had was that when it comes to talks, and we had, I had said that they keep saying that the goal is to take back some territory and then enter negotiations, there was a, a story in the White House where they explained that if negotiations are, if Ukraine retakes territory, there's a lot of people in the White House that actually say that, no, 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 then you can't engage in talks. What you actually have to do then is push your advantage. And so for a lot of people in the Joe Biden administration, counter-offensive success or failure just means we got to go more war, more war, more war. And so it's all about just fighting, dying, and, and keeping the Ukrainians bleeding to fund our military-industrial complex. It's so infuriating. It's basically a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose. It's like, if you're losing, it's not time to go to the negotiating table. But if you're starting to gain ground, well, it's definitely not time to go to the negotiating table. Well, hold on. When's it time to go to the negotiating table, then? <laughs> right. That's just, that's ludicrous. <laughs> right. Well, it's not policy to go to the negotiating table. I think that's probably the most consistent thing we've seen from this war, is that the West does not want it to end. They want to bleed Russia in Ukraine. And Zelensky's reaction at the NATO summit this weekend almost seemed like maybe he had a little bit of recognition of that when he didn't get what he was looking for and just got endorsement. We're going to give you more weapons, more weapons, more weapons. Well, he realized more weapons only means more dead Ukrainians, too. And if this counteroffensive is any indication, Ukraine doesn't have the ability to take back more land. All they have the ability to do is die more take some Russians with them, of course. I mean, the Russian economy is starting to falter. And so this isn't going to be good for Putin or for Russians in general. But at the same time, it's worse for Ukrainians by a substantial margin. And I think that needs to be a major focus of the conversation is that I think so many people are looking at this conflict and focusing in on the leaders. And they're like, well, Putin can't get away with this. And Okay, fine, I'm not defending Putin, but I care much more about the millions of Russian lives and the millions of Ukrainian lives that are at risk and that are being shed in this conflict than I do about punishing Putin. And I, I think the problem that we're getting at here is that there is no endgame. There is no planned endgame here. It is just, and I think what maybe I'd, I'd ask you to explain a little more here is what are the incentives? You mentioned the military-industrial complex, and that's a term that I think people hear a lot, but maybe haven't heard explained in great detail. It's like why they have a hard time understanding, well, why would America be doing this if not for noble reasons? Like, clearly this is America and the EU and, and the Western powers wanting to defend this small nation of people from a larger aggressor, and there couldn't be any other hidden agendas or... Uh, reasons to do that. There's no, there, like, what benefit does America get from all this when, <laughs> and you're chuckling because you need, right. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's this crazy idea, right, that we have this international rules-based order that we have to enforce. And apparently the key thing of the international rules-based order is that only countries that exist in Eastern Europe can't ever have their borders changed. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, that there's this idea that Ukrainians had to keep dying so borders can't change lines. Well, that's stupid. Like, maybe borders need to change lines in Eastern Europe, and that's that's what's going on in Ukraine. And you say you talked to Scott Horton. He's writing a great book called Provoked, and he's given a lot of talks on this if anybody wants to listen and, and really learn how America is in part responsible for the war in Ukraine, how we provoked Russia, how we created all these security concerns for Russia in Ukraine that led to the war. But, you know, that's a lot, a big story, so we don't have to get into that here. But with provoking the war, there's going to need to be a territory exchange. And to have this policy that Ukrainians have to keep dying until the territory is restored to its initial borders, it's just the stupid American dogmatic international rules-based order, which really just means that whatever we're doing has to be beneficial to the American empire. Because right now we have President Joe Biden, who of course wanted to break a rock into three countries when he was 
I believe, vice president, if not senator. And on the military-industrial complex, if you look, there's been a massive boost in weapons spending in Europe. And so although a lot of those weapons being purchased are being purchased from American companies. And so Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Huntington Angles, all these companies where almost all their money comes from the Pentagon, billions of dollars of every year comes from the Pentagon to these companies. And look right now with Raytheon, I think this is the best example. We have Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. He's former board member of Raytheon. He keeps saying that what we need to have happen is to send more Patriot missiles to Ukraine. We have whistleblowers that are coming out saying that Raytheon is massively overcharging the American people for these Patriot interceptors. They cost like $400,000 each for each interceptor. And they're saying that's way overpriced. We shouldn't be spending that much money. And yet we keep spending that much. And nobody addresses the conflict of interest. Nobody even brings it up. You know, you get maybe Elizabeth Warren saying this is inappropriate. But of course, Pocahontas has no interest in actually <laughs> holding anybody accountable for anything in government. She just wants to score political points and look good on Twitter. And so we have nobody actually interested in holding anyone accountable And the military industrial complex is raking in billions of dollars of all our money. And it's Ukrainians are dying, Russians are dying, and we're losing our money. And they're just getting richer and richer and richer. Yeah. And, you know, something Libertarian Christian Institute tries to do is not only promote the libertarian case against the war, but to also connect that to what the Bible says and what our Christian faith says. And to me, what I when I see also at play when I look at this, there's the greed element, right? There is these weapons companies and contractors and the politicians who get the support of these lobbyists and, and special Absolutely. interest groups raking in money hand over fist. And that has to be something that we look at as a conflict of interest and a corruption of power and a forsaking of the duty of those who are in the positions of authority to administer civil governance. But then also there is an issue of pride in terms of like valuing the American hegemony, valuing the influence of American power and demanding that what America says the world should look like mm-hmm. and what should happen, those things matter more than the innocent lives being lost. And that is, I think, something that Christians should be especially troubled by, that these leaders are letting their greed and their ego and their pride and their lust for power influence their decisions into letting this war continue unabated rather than seeking to have the least loss of life possible and seek an immediate end to this war and coming to the negotiating table to negotiate not just a ceasefire, but a long lasting peace. It says in Romans 12, to live with peace at all, as far as it depends upon ourselves, that is not what the American government is doing. That is not what NATO is doing. Yeah, I 100% agree with you and just uh, maybe make the point again. And I, I guess I would say hubris over pride is maybe the thing because If you look at the people who are currently in the White House making foreign policy decisions, a lot of them are Hillary Clinton's disciples from the Barack Obama administration. So Antony Blinken, Jade Sullivan, Victoria Nuland, Jeffrey Pyatt, all these people who are now crafting the foreign policy for the Biden government were all taking orders from Hillary Clinton eight years ago in the first half of the Barack Obama administration. So the whole Libya intervention where, as you mentioned before, we have no plan for what's going to happen in Ukraine except for more fighting and dying. They had no plan for what was going to happen in Libya. The whole plan was just to wage a war and turn the country upside down. And something will, somebody will come to the fore is what Hillary Clinton said. Everybody remembers that video of her going, we came, we saw he died, and then her cackling. And that is the attitude that American officials take with the war in Ukraine. They think that they could reshape the world. They clearly can't, but they think that they could reshape the world. And so they're going to try. And that hubris, I mean, could get us all killed in a nuclear war. This is crazy dangerous. I 100% agree. Kyle, I appreciate you sitting down to talk to me about this stuff. Can you tell people where they can find find you and your work in the Libertarian Institute? Yeah, so libertarianinstitute.org. It's a great group. As I said, we got like 15 people now. 
myself, Scott Horton, Keith Knight, Ted Galen Carpenter is one of our new writers, Lori Calhoun, who I, I know bases a lot of her libertarianism in Christianity, actually has a brand new COVID book out against the COVID company line. Absolutely fantastic. So uh, check that out. It's all at libertarianinstitute.org. I host a show that's at the Libertarian Institute called Conflict of Interest. So we talked a little bit about that today. And then I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com. So if you're interested in the anti-war stuff, check out antiwar.com every day. Usually I have a couple stories in the news section there. And then additionally, I put together the viewpoint. So the spotlight article and all that are what I think is the most important stuff in the anti-war movement that day. Awesome. Thank you, Kyle. Definitely, I'll probably be looking to connect with you after Freedom Fest, have you on the show for a longer conversation about this, but this was a good opportunity to sit down and talk about some of the current stuff here at Freedom Fest, where we get to connect with so many different diverse voices in the liberty movement. So thanks again for sitting down, everyone listening. Of course, please check out Kyle and the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Hello, everyone. This is Jacob Winograd. I am again here at Memphis, Tennessee 2023 Freedom Fest with the Libertarian Christian Institute. And joining me is another member of the Libertarian Institute. We've interviewed a lot of you guys over the last couple of days. Fantastic. Uh, but I'm sitting down with Connor Freeman. Connor, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So I've already talked to Scott about, well, everything. And I've talked to Kyle about Russia and Ukraine, and we're going to sit down and we're going to focus more a little bit on China. Something I've noticed a lot in the circles I, I run in outside of the libertarian spheres, because I'm a Christian, I go to a more like, you know, right-wing evangelical sure. church. And, you know, I, I will say it's been somewhat encouraging that more than I'm used to, the right-wing seems to be at least skeptical about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and not just buying the media narrative and the and marching up the beat the war drums like I saw growing up with Afghanistan and Iraq and, and things like that. But what I don't like is sometimes the reasons they have are not libertarian. The reasons are, well, we don't need to worry about Russia because really the boogeyman that we have to start getting ready for is China. Mm -hmm. And so let's get a little bit into that. Does China pose any threat to America, military-wise, economic-wise, or any other way at all? Well, certainly China does not pose a military threat. In fact, the primary issue with China in terms of these military escalations is the fact that, as is usually the case, we're over there. They're not over mm. here. But Barack Obama, and I think it's very important to let particularly people on the right know this, Barack Obama in 2011 launched what he called the Pivot to Asia, which is the largest military buildup since the Second World War, shifting two-thirds of all air and naval, American air and naval forces to the Asia-Pacific, encircling China for a future war with Beijing. And in practice, this has been expanded by the Trump administration and vastly escalated by the Biden administration, actually. What in practice this looks like is we have aircraft carrier strike groups going into the South China Sea. We have American warships and American submarines in the South China Sea. We have spy planes constantly flying sorties in the South China Sea and the East China Sea and the Yellow Sea. We have all these commitments to defend, to go to war with China over disputed reefs and islands and rocks and, and islets and archipelagos in the South China Sea, which are very often unmanned, and you have a lot of overlapping claims there between regional actors. But what policies, the policy since uh, the Donald Trump administration has been to reject all of China's claims virtually. And then beginning under Obama, actually, we send, we've been sending warships provocatively close to Chinese claimed features in the South China Sea within that 12 nautical mile limit with American warships, and what we call those is freedom of navigation operations. So extremely provocative military mm. maneuvers and basically challenging China. And we do the same thing when we're flying these spy planes near their coast and sailing warships to the Taiwan Strait every month. And there have been uh, numerous escalations on the Taiwan policy as well under Biden in contravention of really 50 years of American policy, the one China policy and strategic ambiguity vis-a-vis -vis what we would do in the event of an attack on Taiwan, which I argue our policy is actively provoking. Similarly to the provocations uh, that we've seen that have led to the war in Ukraine. Right. Uh, and so 
as far as a military threat, even the Pentagon will describe China's military posture as anti-access area denial. And I think you could see right there that this is about keeping us away from them, in the, away from their coasts, and defending themselves in their own sphere of influence. And really, they've responded to the expansion of American military power, the American military footprint, over these la particularly over these last three administrations, in their backyard. Right. So would you say that there's not a very high chance that the UFOs we keep hearing about in the news are just advanced China, advanced Chinese technology and they're getting ready to invade us? No, I don't, <laughs> I don't see that happening. And, you know, the other point, too, about, you know, people are very threatened by the weather balloon that because of unexpected uh -huh, weather yeah. blew over the continental U.S. earlier this year. And that was used as an excuse to ramp up the China paranoia, to cancel important diplomatic trips. Secretary of State Antony Blinken who might be the worst diplomat in history, canceled his trip to Beijing, which was sorely needed. He subsequently has gone over there, but we really do need to be talking with the Chinese. We do need to be making concessions on these issues of Taiwan and our military expansion in their neighborhood. And quite frankly, when this topic is discussed, when China is discussed, among people like you and me, regular Americans, very often the U.S. policy and our role in provoking a conflict and escalating tensions and pressuring China. This is all sort of left out of the picture. So all we ever hear about is the things that they're doing to us. And very often it's things, they have to make up things. Like this is a spy balloon. They're trying to uh, infiltrate our country here with this thing. And it, even the, I believe even the Pentagon admitted that it was not collecting data while it was over there. And it's, it was a, uh, a weather balloon. They have not provided the evidence to show that it was any kind of a surveillance device, even after they shot it with the, uh, I believe it was an F-22 off the coast of the Carolinas. Yeah, after saying they weren't gonna shoot it. Right. <laughs> so that was an interesting development. What is it, would you say, and maybe there's not one answer to this, but what are, or would appear to be, because I'm sure there's a difference between what the Pentagon and what government officials will say their agenda is with China, and then there's what is maybe we can glean by looking at the actual policies and actions of all of our naval operations mm -hmm. and military operations and stuff. But what is, what is like the stated agenda with China? But what, and then what is like maybe can we glean is the actual agenda with what America's trying to do with China? Well, so I'm sure you're familiar with the congressional delegations that we continually sent to Taiwan, mm -hmm. uh, treating them like they're a separate entity, as their own country and not a part of China, which has been our policy the last 50 years of saying that China and Taiwan are part of the same country and we view Beijing as the sole government of China. And so what we've done is we have increased weapon sales it's, you know, in the unprecedented, uh, the NDAA, we're throwing in billions of dollars in military aid to Taiwan, which is something that was never done until the Biden administration. And we are sending troops openly now to the island, training local forces for war with the mainland. We, we're bringing hundreds of Taiwanese troops to the United States, train them for war. And I mean, the other thing that we're doing, especially if you look at as far as like what the ostensible policy is, they'll gaslight the Chinese and the American people and they'll say, well, we still maintain our one China policy and we don't seek an independent Taiwan. But all of these these increased diplomatic relations with Taiwan, sending over high-level U.S. officials, which began really under the Trump administration's and Nancy Pelosi's trip, which caused the largest Chinese military drills around Taiwan in history. And so when we do things like this, they take notes on what Chinese reactions are. So we've heard from, say, the head of Pacific Air Forces, General Kenneth Wilchbatch, who has said, you saw what they did when Pelosi went over to Taiwan. They set up a blockade on the east side of the island. So what we've got to do is sink those ships. That has to be our main priority, is sinking those ships. So even if for whatever reason, we provoke this conflict so much by leaning into this, to supporting these independence-minded forces, these radical factions in Taiwan, and we continually upgrade our military relationship with Taiwan, and it causes some kind of a crisis and they set up a blockade. Even if it doesn't get kinetic, men like Wolfsbatch will ensure that it does by trying to shoot through the Chinese blockade. We have Christine Warmuth, the Secretary of the Army, who told AEI earlier this, uh, uh, an American Enterprise Institute conference earlier this year that 
We are preparing to fight and win a war with China over Taiwan. She was talking about contingencies, about how we're going to have martial law in the United States and have the army supporting civil authorities. She wants to have army forces in the Indo-Pacific seven to eight months out of the year and set up staging bases for the Navy, the Marines, and the Air Force in the event when the war starts. That's going to be the army's role at pre-positioning supplies and, and this sort of thing. And then we're looking at... Um, you know, the head of Indo-Pacific Command recently was speaking to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, where he said, actually, that President Biden and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin have tasked him with two missions. One, to avoid a war with China over Taiwan, and two, if he fails at job one, to be prepared to fight and win that. Then he has to fight and win that war. In strategic ambiguity, we, we always used to say, for many decades since Carter's Taiwan Relations Act and our normalization with Beijing in the late 70s and early 80s, which began with Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger when they opened up to China, this is throwing all that away. And you know, Biden has made all these gaps where he said repeatedly that we are committed to Taiwan's defense and we will send American sons and daughters to the island to defend, to fight a war with China over this breakaway province. And for the longest time, they would always say the White House had walked that back, you know, and it was considered to be a gaffe. But earlier this year, speaking to the House Intelligence Committee, Averill Haynes, the director of national intelligence, said to Representative Chris Stewart from Utah, he's a Republican, because Stewart was asking, should we just do away with strategic ambiguity at this point with the way our policy is headed? And she said, I think it's very clear to the Chinese what our policy is based on the president's comments. So we have it from the head of Indo-Pacific Command and the president himself, as well as the top spy in the country, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, that strategic ambiguity is in fact dead and gone. And concurrently, we are provoking this conflict because China has said many times they do not want to reunify with Taiwan by force, but they have not ruled it out. And so all of our actions are making war more likely. And Chinese officials all the way up to President Xi have told the American, their American counterparts, that Taiwan is the first red line which must not be crossed. And they continually warn us that our policies are provoking this war. They don't want it, but they will, if they have to, they will use force. Yeah, this all sounds very, very familiar mm -hmm. <laughs> to yeah. what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I mean, heck, I was going to make the joke while you were talking of like the way things have gone with Ukraine and talking about them joining NATO, even though... NATO means North Atlantic trade, North Atlantic, crap, I forget the acronym name. For um, NATO? For NATO, yeah. North Atlantic like, Treaty Organization. Treaty Organization, right. And it's like, you know, at this point, might as well just include Taiwan in that because we've already drastically uh, <laughs> redefined what North Atlantic means. Mm -hmm. But Oh, NATO <laughs> has targeted Beijing in their strategic concept document, I believe, from last year. Right. So it's just frustrating, but not surprising, I guess, everything you're telling us. I mean, I guess... <sighs> We're blowing up all kinds of NATO-style alliances, or at least attempting to, in the Asia-Pacific as well, with the Quad, with Japan, India, and Australia, and the United States. And the administration views this as sort of an, they would like to turn it into a East Asian version of NATO. And then we have the AUKUS alliance, where we're preparing for us to, we want to help Australia be able to produce their own nuclear-powered submarines by the 2040s. But in the meantime, we're going to turn Australia into a hub for all of our anti-China coalition's submarine uh, maintenance and re-equipping. We're going to be sending more troops to Australia and B-52 bombers and rotating them throughout so the country. It, so it sounds like, to put this in, to summarize all that in layman terms, we are the American government, rather, is ever increasingly motivated to make sure the sun never sets on the American empire. Right. And quite <laughs> frankly, this is the logical extent of the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which I do believe we're still operating under. This was first enshrined in the 1992, well, it was originally the, well, the 1992 Defense Planning Guidance, which did not become the national defense strategy until George W. Bush, but this was during the George H.W. Bush administration. And Dick Cheney, when he was Secretary of Defense, the neocons uh, Zalmay Khaliazad and Paul Wolfowitz to write up the future of essentially the future of American foreign policy looking toward the 21st century. And it entailed basically expanding NATO security pacts with the former Warsaw Pact states and security guarantees, I should say, expanding our alliances in the Middle East and Latin America and Asia and significantly increasing spending on air power and naval power and ensuring and missiles and ensuring that no rival superpower or even alliance of regional powers could ever even think to question American global military power. 
And so Russia and China are the two main targets. And we've seen the Republicans and Democrats have led this charge. But what happens is Clinton begins the NATO expansion in 1999 with Poland, Czech Republic, and, and Hungary. And Obama launches the Asia pivot in 2011. But in the case of the China campaign, the Republicans are trying to catch up. The representatives, this is the Democrats' project. But no matter how bad Biden is on this policy, and I was talking earlier about the spy planes and the warships, the Chinese defense ministry was saying by April of 2021, when Biden was speaking to Congress and saying, we're going to defeat China and win the 21st century, we're in extreme competition. And Kurt Campbell, his top official for China on the National Security Council was saying the era of engagement with China is over. They were saying, look, the presence of American warships has expanded by 40% and the presence of these spy planes has increased by 20% or maybe it's vice versa. But anyway, by the end of 2021, Biden's administration had flown 2,000 sorties by November of spy planes in these waters surrounding China in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And it's, I believe that was double what Trump had done in 2020. And he nearly doubled the deployments of aircraft carrier strike groups. And now they've, what they're doing is they're sending there for longer deployments. And they conduct these massive military drills right in front of China, just like we've done with NATO and Russia. Throughout 2021, NATO and the U.S. were carrying out the largest military exercises in the post-Cold War era, largely on Russia's doorstep, including in Ukraine and in the Black Sea. It's just insane. I mean, like, I've made this point with Russia and Ukraine, how, like, how would Americans feel if, like, Mexico or Canada... Uh, actually be worse. Like, well, how would they feel if like a foreign country were traveling to Mexico or Canada and building a lot of missile launchers near the border, near where our, near where our missile bases and stuff are? Like, we wouldn't exactly feel warm and fuzzy about that. Same thing with what you're describing here. Like, if there was a country sending a bunch of spy planes and Navy ships and stuff all around our area and doing demonstrations and stuff, you know, on the borders of these zones and stuff, like, you know, would we just be like, well, whatever, business as usual. I mean, no, people would be losing their minds because they would be like, well, this is clearly like provocation for war or a threat of, you know, a threat of war looming out on the horizon. Um, We would cite the military doctrine (laughs) and threaten to burn the whole world down, just like John F. Kennedy did in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, exactly. So it's just what can, as we come to a close here, like, what can we do? I mean, obviously, I talked about this with Kyle earlier. The most important thing I think we can do as libertarians and anti-war activists is fighting the propaganda of the war machine. And that's what conversations like this are about. That's what the work you do, the Libertarian Institute is and antiwar.com and, and people like that are doing. But beyond just educating people and raising awareness, I mean, is there any silver lining of hope where we can You know, if enough people are protesting against this, you know, I think we've seen in the past that if enough general consensus builds up to say, no, we will not tolerate Mm -hmm. uh, war with X, whether it's China or Russia or Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, is that, you know, what we need to be focusing on is just drumming up that protest to this as much as possible? I think so. And I'm also very encouraged by the fact that Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and I ordinarily... I've never in my life been a guy who goes around saying, this politician or this guy running for office, let alone the presidency, is really, really, he's saying some tremendous things and we should really support this guy. So I'm not going to tell anybody to support any political candidate or anything. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s China policy is as good as anybody since Ron Paul. And I wrote an article for the Ron Paul Institute about this called End Washington's Build-Up with China, Pursue Peace and Cooperation. And at the end of it, I use a large block quote of, he did a Twitter space where Tulsi Gabbard asked him if war with China was necessary. And he said, absolutely not. We should be, this should be an opportunity for economic collaboration. We were promised a peace dividend after the Cold War. We never got our peace dividend. Why are we making Taiwan a military issue? Let Taiwan and China figure it out. They don't want war. They want peace and prosperity. We should be de-escalating. We should be talking to China. We haven't talked to China in five years. And he was saying how, Essentially, this is another campaign by the military-industrial complex, as you were discussing earlier. China is going to yield the biggest of big-ticket items for the military-industrial complex. And so many of Biden's officials come from especially the Center for New American Security, which is funded by Lockheed and Raytheon and yep. Boeing and Northrop yep. Grumman. It's all, a, it's all yeah. a money laundering scheme. So if he's popular enough, and he, he really is, I think there's a, a sizable 
part of our population that really appreciates at least several of the things that he's saying. If he can get that message, especially about China and Russia, but especially China, because there are quite a few people that are now saying the right things about Russia and Ukraine, or they're at least opposing this proxy war and this nuclear brinksmanship and this massive spending and all these people being killed in this horrible, cynical proxy war led by the Biden administration. If he can get that message about China out to more and more Americans so they can understand that we are actively instigating this war, which could, as Colonel Daniel Davis has pointed out, this is a vital interest for China. We have no national security interests at stake in Taiwan unless we unnecessarily get ourselves involved. And China can nuke continental U.S. cities. They have hydrogen bombs and they have the missiles to do that. So if we start this fight, which we are attempting to, then, or at least that's where the policy is headed, I believe they really are trying to provoke some kind of a proxy war, at least. Then people need to know that ahead of time, instead of once we get into an actual war in Ukraine and people start to realize, oh yeah, we did provoke this. I love that Kennedy is getting out there and telling people we should just have peace. We don't need this militarist policy of surrounding them and threatening them and menacing them with weapons of war. We can have peace and trade and diplomacy. And that, as I said, is as good as anybody since Ron Paul. So I'm hoping people hear that and absorb it. And I hope he changes the consensus. I agree. Connor, thanks for sitting down with me, everyone. You want to hear more from Connor and the Libertarian Institute, go to libertarianinstitute.com and check out everything that they have going on there. So uh, thanks, man. Yeah, thank good. you. We're actually at libertarianinstitute.org, just Org. to say, but- Sorry. <laughs> and no, you're all good. And uh, check out antiwar.com as well, yes. please. All right. We'll be talking to you again soon. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.